So we have been learning what love is and is not uh, from 1 Corinthians 13 this summer. We've called it our Summer of Love series. And now that we're really over the halfway point through uh, chapter 13 and these descriptions that we have of love, how's it going? How's your love? What, what changes have you noted in your life? What areas have you repented of and began moving closer to Christ-like definition of what love is and how it should act and how it should live out in your life circumstances? Where have you been led to repentance? And, and I wanted to open it up because I, I wanted to give you opportunity to share, to maybe be an encouragement to say, hey, here's an area that I noted in my life and been working in this direction. And uh, I think that's what we're supposed to be doing as a church, is having those kinds of real conversations about how the Word of God is affecting us and changing us. And maybe it's just something you recognized from some of these principles that we've learned. And it hasn't, you haven't had much change yet, but you're, you're aware of it, and that's a victory in itself. We're still fighting that battle. And so who wants to share uh, where you've been encouraged in regards to love? How's it going in your life? Josh, thank you, sir. Very good, very good example. Mm. Yeah. We got to work at it, right? We closed last week with uh, these verses from uh, Philippians chapter number two, and it says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence but even more now in my absence. Here's what he says. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's an amazing statement. You got to work at this stuff. You have to work at growing in love. And I know we can look at that and we can walk through these definitions and say, man, we've talked about so many things this summer and every sermon's kind of stabbed me here and there and I'm, I'm feeling beat up. And, and it's hard, but keep working at it. And the next verse is beautiful. Because he says this, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You've got to work, but God is already at work in you. God is already pushing you in this direction. The Spirit is already striving to cultivate this kind of love in you. We have to cooperate with the Spirit's work. All of these descriptions that we've looked at in chapter 13 thus far are verbs. Remember, we, we kind of opened with that. Love does. Love is action. These aren't just things that happen. These are things that we, we do and we engage in. So we have to get to work. But today... Let's focus on a couple new ones. All right, love, first of all, is not easily angered. Kicking off the list of descriptions that we find in chapter 13 is verse 4, love is patient. And here's how we defined that, that patience. Love suffers long. Love is slow to anger. It bears up under provocation uh, and doesn't complain or, or fight back. Meaning this, love is willing to suffer wrong without retaliating. That's what it is to be patient. To suffer long without retaliating. Or it could be described this way, it's willing to be treated unjustly and still show goodwill to the ones who are treating you unjustly. 
Well, similar to patience is the description we find now in verse 5. Love is not easily angered. It means this, love isn't irritable. It's kind of the words we use, right? It's not touchy. You're so touchy. Or you're so sensitive to, to slights. Love isn't those things. A few weeks ago when we talked about patience, I I brought up Abraham Lincoln as an example of that. And how Stanton, uh, who was a nemesis to him, consistently insulted him, uh, worked against him, said cruel and vile things about him. And Lincoln would never respond to the slander, but when he was president and needed a secretary of war, He asked Stanton if he would be the Secretary of War. And and his friends and his family were like, why would you do that? This is the the worst guy in the world to you. He's treated you so poorly. And Lincoln's response was, he is the best man for the job. Lincoln didn't let Stanton's attitude and actions towards him affect his decisions. And when Lincoln's body lie in state, here were the words that Stanton said As he looked at him through tears, he said, There lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen. His animosity had finally been broken by Lincoln's long-suffering patience, had finally won out. And I think sometimes we, we hear a story like that, we think about a guy like Lincoln, and people conclude, well, he was just a passive guy. He was, he was a guy who was just born with an innate sense of, of patience, But that's the very issue, because patience isn't passive. Those two don't go together. Patience isn't just simply passive or a result of being passive. Love does. We're called to do something. Or patience is an action that has to be performed. So the patience we're being called to here is a patience that guards against, guards, there's the action, it's guarding against, it's fighting against being upset and angry when someone acts against us. Or does something we don't like. Patience fights back. When somebody wrongs you, patient love fights. When somebody cuts you off in traffic, patient love fights. Somebody fails to hold up to their end of a contract to pay you what they agreed to pay you, patient love fights. When a manager schedules you to work, even though you specifically requested that off and they just forgot, patient love fights. When your kids fail to show appreciation for what you do, patient love fights. When your parents fail to show appreciation for you or don't seem to have an understanding of what you're going through in life, patient love fights. When your spouse forgets to pick up the milk, and so then you have to go and pick up the milk and change your schedule, patient love fights. And by fight, I mean this. In those instances, love, patient love, preaches the gospel of Christ to you. Love argues back against that inner lawyer that says, I want justice! I demand justice! Love argues against it. Love fights back. Love quotes 1 Peter 2 where it says this, For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God One endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. It's a gracious thing while mindful of God, a person endures sorrows and affliction, suffering unjustly. You know what Peter goes on to describe after that? Christ is our example in that. When he was reviled, what did he do? He reviled not. 
When he was threatened, he didn't threaten in return. He wasn't easily angered. His love fought back. Love is internally screaming, you before me. In those instances where anger begins to present itself. No, no, you before me, not me before you. Patient love bears with certain annoyances and inconveniences. Just to remind you of a few of these things we talked about a few weeks ago. It bears up under annoyances and inconveniences without complaining. That's what patience does. It doesn't lose its temper when it's provoked. Love remembers that the person who is intent on having his own way it will be easily angered. Proven from life, proven from the Proverbs, and plenty of examples that we find in Scripture. Love is not easily angered. Are you? Love is not easily angered. Are you? Second, let's look at this one. Love keeps no record of wrong. Keeps no record of wrongs. What do you think if I told you that this morning is... As I was interacting with you, as I was observing you interacting with other people, I was jotting down in a particular notebook all of your mistakes and your failures, being very observant. Or if I, I showed you a folder on my computer that was labeled MetaView, and, and under that folder was a file for everyone in this room, and every time I observed you doing something wrong, I'd go to my computer, open up your file, and, and type in the thing that you did wrong. For instance, I could you know, use an example, you know, maybe Tyler ignored me this morning. He actually didn't, and I pick on Tyler because he's one of the nicest people here. Uh, let's just say he didn't, he didn't shake my hand or say hi to me, just kind of walk right by me, didn't even acknowledge me, and so, well, Tyler Hayden, and I type it out. What I hope you would say to such a list or a file would be, man, that's really messed up. <laughs> Because that is, I mean, that's really messed up. One of the, the movies that shaped my childhood, or my, my adolescence, probably not my childhood, and this will reveal a lot about me to you and you'll understand more, is uh, Billy Madison, uh, Adam Sandler movies. And so there's a particular scene in there that, that sticks out in my mind uh, where Billy calls an old childhood friend, uh, Danny McGrath, and he not his friend, but a guy he picked on. And he apologized, says, man, I'm so sorry I picked on you during our childhood. And he's apologetic. And he asks, and then, will you forgive me? And, and Danny McGrath, very cool-headedly, just responds, yeah, man, no, no problem at all. And that's no big deal. And they agree to maybe get together, have some coffee sometime, and they hang up the phone. And in the same scene, Danny McGrath turns around, and there's a list on his wall. Billy Madison is number four on a list of like ten people, and at the top it says, people to kill. And so he grabs a pen, and he marks through Billy Madison's name and says, okay, I'm not going to kill him anymore. He is apologized. And he's like, man, that's, that's pretty messed up too, to have a kill list, a hit list for the people that have wronged you in your life. But while not many of us, at least I hope none of us, have physical lists that we keep of other people, these big brains of ours are really, really good. Really, really good at keeping mental lists and logs of the people who have hurt us, the people who have wronged us. And guess what? That's messed up too. That's not love according to Scripture. 
Another way to describe this love that doesn't keep a record of wrongs is it is a love that is not resentful, a love that doesn't hold grudges, a love that doesn't grow bitter. One author wrote this, and I thought this was a great definition of resentment. Resentment is carefully keeping books and then reading and rereading those books, hoping for a chance to get even. Does that describe you? Does that describe the way your, your mind and your heart work? Carefully keeping track and continuing to rehash, rethink, and just waiting for the day. Let's just be honest. Most of us battle resentment. Some areas of our life. We read and reread our meticulous, our messed up records of other people's wrongs. We're like, we're like Jonah, sitting outside of the city of Nineveh and just waiting for God to bring down the fire. Let the judgment fall. We're like James and John. You know, in the scriptures, they're called the sons of thunder. They get this nickname. Well, there's a story from which they get that particular nickname. Jesus, the disciples, were moving through Samaria, and there was a particular village they were going to stop at, and the village said, hey, Jesus, we really don't want you here. And James and John said, let's bring down the fire. Let's consume them, Jesus. Let's do it right here, right now. And, and Jesus rebukes them. But that describes some of us. We're a lot like Jonah. We're like James and John. Some of you are resentful towards parents who failed you. And there may be no question, yeah, they absolutely failed you. They said things wrong, they did things wrong. They weren't very good parents, or maybe they weren't even a parent to you at all. They weren't in the picture. You're resentful against somebody maybe you never even met. Some of you are keeping a record of wrong that a friend did to you 20, 30 years ago. Something they said, something they did. And you're holding on to it. You're reading it. You're rereading it. Some of you may be stubbornly refusing to greet, to talk to, to take time or initiative with somebody in this very room. You're resentful because of something they said, didn't say, they did, they didn't do. You're bitter against a boss, a manager, a coworker because somebody got a promotion you didn't. You might be ignoring your spouse. You might be resentful because they didn't meet one of your expectations. They didn't do that thing you wanted them to do. I once heard a counselor speaking on this particular subject of bitterness, and he told the story of a couple that hadn't had a meaningful conversation in 10 years, and it all stemmed from the fact that the wife came home with the wrong, like, soap or shampoo. 10 years of resentment and silence because of the wrong shampoo. We are very capable of that. Love keeps no record of wrongs. And so for those of you who are here and, and you're resentful, you're keeping records, 
and you feel justified to do so, please, please, please listen. Listen to what I'm about to say. Let these scriptures that, we're gonna, that I'm going to say just, just soak into you because the same Greek word for record that we find here in 1 Corinthians 13 is often used in the New Testament to describe the pardoning act of God in forgiving you of your wrongs that you've committed against him. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Blessed is the person whose sin God does not keep record of. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, not recording their trespasses against them and keeping a list. Once our sin is placed under the blood of Christ, once we have asked for forgiveness and recognized that forgiveness is found in Christ, our sins, our wrongs that have been committed against God, they're, they're wiped away, they're blotted out. And if you were to look at the, the record book of God, if there really is such a thing, all that you would find by your name is righteous. Righteousness of Christ. There's no record of wrong. Man, that's good news. That's good news for me. That's good news for you. Because if I kept a, a record of my wrongs, that'd be an awful lot of spiral notebooks. Pages and pages and pages. But it only takes one righteous. So what does a love that keeps no record of wrong really look like? First of all, it preaches this, this previously mentioned good news to itself all day, every day. I'm forgiven in Christ. I've been pardoned because of Christ. There's forgiveness for my sin because of Christ. Love remembers that we are sinners who have been forgiven. God has removed our sins as far as the, the east is from the west. So why am I holding the sin of somebody else so closely to me? How is it that I feel justified keeping their sin in my pocket when God's removed my sin infinitely? Let it go. Forgive. That's the, another aspect of this is understanding. What, what, I, what I believe everybody in this room understands and you would, say, you would say, I'm not a perfect person. I mess up. I don't think there's anybody in this room who's, who's in a position of pride and, and, and filled with that much pride to say, I'm, I'm a perfect person. Every one of us would say, I mess up, I make mistakes. So why do we not allow other people 
to make mistakes? Why do we feel justified in holding their sin against them when God holds none against us? Read Matthew 18. The forgiveness that God shows us and how we don't show it to other people. It's an incredibly convicting passage. Love preaches this gospel to us every day and we're reminded of who we are and what God's done for. Second thing it does is love forgives. Love forgives. And that's a verb. Okay, Forgiveness isn't a feeling. Forgiveness is something that just happens. We, we promise to forgive. That's what it does. Love promises to forgive that other person who hurt us. What's the promise that it makes? Well, it promises a few different things. One, it would promise that I'm not going to let what you did affect our relationship. I'm not going to bring up what you did and throw it in your face at any point in the future. It's forgiven. It's done. East is from the west. No record of the wrong. I'm not going to gossip to other people about it and slander you. Those are the promises of forgiveness. And some of you are thinking, man, well, that's, that's quite a cost. I mean, I can't, I can't just give that up because if I give that up, then I, then I can't win anymore. I can't win the arguments. I can't win by throwing this big thing they did back in their face. That's really what it comes down to. We want to win. We want to be better than other people. the time's right and when it's needed, we want to pull out our list and say, you did this and this and this and this, and we want to decimate them. And you are right. If that's your definition of winning, then you will not win if you forgive. But, but the scriptures speak to the fact that if you forgive, you've already won. Winning is showing grace. Winning is being like Christ. Winning is loving. Keeping no record of the wrong. What does it look like, finally, love that keeps no record of wrong has a good perspective on the sovereignty of God? There's a really great story in the Old Testament Chunk of Genesis. It's about Joseph. His brothers sold him into slavery. He has to go to Egypt, serves as a slave. He's, ac- he's accused, accused of, of attempted rape. He's thrown into prison. He's forgotten in prison. And you're familiar with the story, then he has this, this rise to power because he's able to interpret dreams and so forth. There's famine in the land, and, and his brothers show up. And, and eventually... His brothers and his dad, they, they relocate. They come to live there in Egypt. And dad dies. And you remember what the brother's first thought was? Joseph's going to kill us. Now that dad's out of the picture, we're done. Joseph has a list of our wrongs. He's going to pull it out. 
He's going to read them, and we're done for. Joseph's response is incredible. There's really two responses, and the first one is this. He's weeping, by the way. And he says, am I in the place of God? Your judgment is not my responsibility. Would to God that we would all have that attitude just day in and day out, that the people around us, their judgment is not our responsibility. We're not in God's place. Then he says this, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. You wronged me, but God used it for good. So the next time somebody wrongs you, next time your spouse says something that hurts, next time you get cheated, stop for a moment and remember, what they intended for evil, God intends for good. There's some purpose in this. There's something God's wanting to work out in my life and in these circumstances to bring about good. I want to end with this warning, though. If you refuse to forgive, I've no doubt in my mind that many of you are thinking of relationships right now. I hope you are. Isn't it a beautiful thing that that I don't have to bring those specific things up? The Spirit of God's bringing them up. And if you refuse to forgive, if if you grow in your resentfulness, If you insist on keeping records, and some of you will, and that breaks my heart. Here's the consequences. First of all, you won't be forgiven. If you refuse to forgive, you won't be forgiven. Those are not my words. That's not my theology. That's Jesus' words. At the end of that parable in Matthew 18 where the guy is forgiven of the great debt that he owed the master and he goes out and he holds his fellow worker responsible for the small debt and he won't forgive. He won't show the same grace. Here's how Jesus ends that. It says, and in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of the debt. And so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The principle here is this, forgiven people forgive. And the reason is it's because it's in your your supernatural nature to forgive. Because the Spirit of God is inside of you and compelling you to be like Christ, to show grace, to show mercy, to forgive. And if you continue to hold resentment, you continue to keep record of wrongs, you're just simply proving that your faith is a farce. And there's nothing genuine about your new life in Christ. Second warning I would give 
is bitterness is going to eat you alive. It'll cause you to alienate yourself from relationships with others. Hebrews 12.15 says it this way, a root of bitterness will cause many to be defiled. If you were to go to the doctor tomorrow and she tells you, you have a, you have a cancerous mass in your abdomen the size of a baseball and it's growing fast. We need to get it out as soon as possible. I would think if you're like me, you'd be like, well, I'm taking off my shirt right now. I'm going to lay down on the table. Let's get it out now. What are we waiting for? But today the Spirit of God is like that doctor saying, you've got a cancerous mass, and it's spreading quickly. We need to get it out. Some of you are going to say, oh, I'll take care of that later. It's no big deal. Get it out. Because I assure you, if you continue, it will destroy you spiritually, mentally, emotionally, relationally. Here's the thing, it, it, it does not just affect that relationship. What happens as bitterness and resentment grow, as we keep lists of wrongs, it may have started with one person and the wrong they did to us, but eventually we, we by nature and habit start holding resentment against other people around us. We start keeping record of wrong of this person and that person, and, and we've alienated everybody. You know what? It'll also destroy you physically. There's medical proof for that. You hold on to grudges. You're resentful. It will affect you. I've seen it happen. And it's heartbreaking. There was a a lady who used to go to church here years and years ago. And she had had a rough life. I'm going to be honest. Very difficult family circumstances. Trials to face every day. She had been, in my opinion, unjustly treated by the law. And as a result, it affected her family. And she was bitter. And resentful. She wouldn't deal with it. And one by one, it began to affect all of her relationships with people. Until one day, it was a Sunday, I wasn't here, and I, I honestly, I thank God for that because I don't want that to be my last memory. She left this auditorium cussing people out all the way to the parking lot. And you can think, oh, that would never be me. Well, you're a fool. Because it could be you. And it may have been you at some point. Already, not in this building, but in another place. Finally, resentment will cause you to neglect your God-given responsibilities. 
You're so preoccupied with resentment. You're so preoccupied with reading and rereading your list. And like Jonah, you're sitting out just waiting for God to bring judgment to these people who have hurt you. That you neglect your own responsibilities. You're not loving the body. You're not serving the body. You're alienating yourself. A couple weeks ago, I quoted from Princess Bride. There's another scene at the very end. They're jumping out the window, getting on the white horses. And Inigo Montoya, whose life purpose was to get revenge for his father's death, he looks at Wesley and says, I've been in the revenge business my whole life. I don't know what to do. And that describes some of you. You focus so much attention on, on the people that have hurt you that, that you don't even know what you're supposed to be doing. You don't, you're, you're, you're aimless in life. Early church father Christendom, he made this observation. It's beautiful. He says that a wrong done against love is like a spark that falls into the sea and is quenched. Peter wrote something similar this way under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Above all, above all, keep loving one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. Are you easily angered? Are you keeping record of the wrongs that others have done against you? Remember the gospel. Remember what Christ has done for you. Repent of your, your lack of love that you're showing to other people. Restore those relationships that you've broken. And rejoice in the grace of God. That there is restoration. That there is hope. And even the darkest of circumstances. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?